Good afternoon. Important. Um, welcome to the LSE on this last day of the school's eighth Space for Thought Festival on the theme of utopias. Uh, my name is uh, Peter Stothard, editor of the Times Literary Supplement, and my job is merely to introduce our distinguished guests, Margaret Macmillan here and uh, Tom Holland. Um, Margaret, the acclaimed author of Peacemakers and most recently History's People, Instructions Show Book. <laughs> Even though it's a, I don't think it looked quite like that, but anyway, it's a. Uh, and uh, Tom is the historian translator of Herodotus, too big to show, <laughs> whose best selling Rubicon was followed last year by Dynasty. The Rise and Fall of the House of Caesars. Showbook. Showbook. <laughs> uh, Margaret is the uh, warden of St. Anthony's Oxford. And Tom, as far as I know, is uh, blissfully independent of any kind of responsibility. <laughs> yes. Both of them uh, travel the roads of, uh, that link uh, biography to history and the ways in which uh, participants in history... Uh, set the terms and rewrite the history that we read. And each of them will make uh, opening remarks and a prize, I think, for whoever links their theme closest to that of Utopias. Oh, that's a challenge. Uh, uh, okay. and, uh, <laughs> but, and then uh, we ask them the questions uh, we want answered. Um, my questions, which may be quite few... And most importantly, uh, your questions, which I hope will be the most, uh, until 6.30, when there'll be a book signing just outside. Uh, Before we start, just two bits of housekeeping, as they say on these occasions. Phones should be set to silent, please. They were once, you were told to turn them off, but now you're not told to turn them off, just to silent, so that you can tweet anything that's exciting that you hear. And for anyone tweeting, we are at that little sign, which I think is called hashtag, hashtag LSE LitFest, with all caps apart from the IT and the EST. So, (laughs) if you've uh, all got that straight, um, first to you, Margaret. Well, well, thank you. You, You've left me completely confused, and I can't remember if I've turned my phone off. When I first started teaching history, my students, and they still sometimes do it, they said, you're so lucky to be teaching a subject, you know, once you've done your notes, you must never have to change them again. (laughs) (laughs) And, well, you know what I mean. And, and, you know, what I have always said to my students, and I say to, to others, is history is constantly changing, partly because we find new information or we discover new documents or we find something that someone has forgotten, but also because we change. Our societies change and we ask different questions. And I think we ask a lot of history. Um, You know, the history is not just a quiet little subject which is parked over there, which is something that is good for a cold winter night to watch on television or or read. History is a very important subject, and I think we recognize that, um, even if we don't articulate it often. I think history is very important because it gives us a sense of who we are. We are all produced by our own individual histories. What has happened to us in the course of our lives, what we've encountered in the course of our lives, what societies we were born into, what sort of values those societies had, what economic and social and political changes have taken place in our lifetimes. All of these have helped to shape us 
as individuals and also as members of larger groupings. And history is often a very important part in helping us make, making, making us aware of our identities. I think individuals, but groups, ethnicities, religions, nations, all use history to explain who they are to themselves. They use it to validate themselves. And when you began to get the great nationalist revivals or the great nationalist births in, in Europe in the 19th century, which then, of course, spread around the world, including to the Middle East, one of the very important components of that was history. It was when historians began to create national histories. They began to create a history of something called the German people, which was not always good history, because what they did was project back into the past what they hoped they'd find there, and what they hoped they'd find, and what they persuaded themselves and others they had found was something called a German people, which had always been there with recognizable characteristics, and therefore must in the present be recognized as a separate nation. And this is something which continues to go on. There's a wonderful story that Neil Atchison tells of a young German anthropologist who went to the south coast of Turkey, on the south coast of the Black Sea, sorry, the south coast of the Black Sea, and found a people living in a valley who were exactly like the rest of their Turkish neighbors. They ate the same food, except they had slightly different expressions and slightly different rituals. And he concluded they were probably a Christian people who had moved there over the centuries and had gradually become Islamized, but who had kept some of their original characteristics. And he began to write this up. And the Turkish authorities, who have quite enough trouble from their point of view with minorities, at this point got twitchy, um, in their usual light-handed fashion, beat him up and threw him in jail and then expelled him from the country. But what he left behind was a nation in process of becoming. And if you go on websites now, you can actually find, these people are called the Laz, L-A-Z, and you can find a website, I'm, I'm sure they're still there, saying we are the Laz people, we have a shared history, we want a Lazistan, an independent Lazistan. So this history is a very powerful force because it creates, I think, very important national myths, and they're often myths. It also often portrays a golden past. And so once upon a time, we were a people who had a great empire, we all lived happily together, or we were a religion where all was harmony, and, and I think Tom will probably talk even more about this than I will, that you know, there was this golden age in the past. Karl Marx did it. There was something called primitive communism where everybody um, shared from each according to his ability to each according to his need, where people could move from one occupation, one pastime to the next. One day, that golden part of the past, that golden age in the past, was going to be recreated in the future. And so history not only provides validation, not only provides reasons for doing what you want to do, gives you a sense of who you are, but it gives a promise that one day something is going to be wonderful. And we have evidence that it was like that in the past. And so I think history is a very powerful force. By using the past, it can portray a utopia in the future. We once had this, therefore we can have it again. And I'm sure many of you will have read the Communist Manifesto, but it's a very powerful piece of polemic. We once had this wonderful world where there wasn't this ruthless competition that you get in capitalism, where people lived in harmony together, we can have it again. And I think that's one of the reasons that Marxism was such an enormously powerful mobilizing force, was that it promised a restoration of something that had existed in the past. So it seemed as though this was really a concrete promise. It's not, this wasn't just a utopia promised in the future. This was to bring back a way of life which had existed in the past, which made it, I think, even more powerful a promise. And so history, I think, is an enormously powerful force, sometimes not always a very satisfactory force, not always a force for good. Many awful things have been done in the name of history, and we've seen it recently in, in the Balkans with the breakup of Yugoslavia, where history was suddenly called in to persuade people that those who'd been their neighbors for generations were not like them, 
I mean, part of what national history does is exclude people. It's us together. It's us sharing our history. You don't belong here. You don't look quite like us. You don't sound quite like us. You might not have the same re uh, religion as, as we do. And so I think history can be dangerous, and it can be used for justification. I mean, I, we can see it every day in political figures. Putin is using Russian history as a justification for Russian foreign policy. We have been humiliated. We once were powerful. We're not going to be humiliated again. We have a, 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 I'm promising you a better world. That's what Donald Trump is doing in his own peculiar way. That's what Boris Johnson may be doing for you, but I, I'm Canadian. I leave you to deal with that one. So I'll stop with that and, and perhaps turn over to, to Tom. Okay, Tom. Right. Well, I, I, I'm going to start on a slightly more autobiographical tone. Um, when I was uh, a child, I was absolutely obsessed by dinosaurs. And I remember going up the lane behind my house and looking at the cows in the field and feeling this incredibly intense yearning that I wish that they were triceratops. <laughs> how much more fascinating, how much more glamorous, how much more fierce the Mesozoic past was to the tedium of life in the 1970s in Wiltshire. And I realise now that... Um, I progressed from an interest in sort of ancient, in, in prehistory to history. And I realized that, that my childish fascina fascination with history operated on a very similar level. There was a sort of feeling that the past was more glamorous and more exciting than uh, uh, the present, which consisted of multi story car parks and arterial roads and that kind of thing. The, you know, those things did not exist in the past. In the past, it was knights on horses, it was Drake on his ship, it was all kind of, just much more appealing. And the kind of histories that I was reading as a child fueled that. So, as a child of Wessex growing up in Wiltshire, I identified passionately with King Alfred, with Athelstan, with the founders of Wessex that then evolved to become the Kingdom of England. And so I would read about uh, Cressy or Agincourt, the defeat of the Spanish Armada, and identify passionately with England. And then, of course, England got subsumed into Britain, and I absolutely identified with the British myths that were propagated. Um, and as I got older, as I started, uh, we, we did uh, the history of the 20th century for O-Level, and it dawned on me, as Margaret was saying, the, the potency of myths that Soviet Russia told about its origins, and of course the potency of the myths that Nazi Germany told about itself. And it dawned on me that the kind of myths, the kind of glamour, the kind of excitement that I'd been buying into might actually be quite dangerous. And... It was that, I, I think that was the sort of the realisation that enabled me to progress from my childish fascination with history to realising that it might be dangerous. And that, in a sense, made it even more exciting <laughs> because it was not just about interrogating myths on a national level. It was about interrogating the myths within me. And I think that all the history I've ever done ever since, that sort of tension, the, the allure and glamour of the myths that are told... And the fascination that comes from questioning them exists in a kind of stasis. Now, Peter offered a prize for um, the person who, which of us could, could introduce Utopia most blatantly. So I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to grab after it. Um, Utopia, of course, was written by Thomas More, and he based it on writings, ancient Greek, ancient Latin, Roman writings about Sparta. And 
the Spartans themselves, they were a kind of, their city-state was presented as a kind of particularly brutal kind of boarding school. And indeed, in the 19th century, boarding schools were overtly modelled on um, accounts of, of how Sparta had functioned. Particularly in Germany. Particularly in Germany, but also in Britain. Um, the problem is, of course, though, that the Spartans were too busy killing their slaves and being wiped out in passes by Persians to write anything much themselves. And as a result, almost everything that we know about the Spartans derives from outsiders, and the most potent accounts of, uh, of Sparta were written, in many cases, centuries after the city and its unique system of government had um, ceased to exist. And so as a result, historians talk about the Spartan mirage. And it's an acknowledgement of the almost impossibility of getting back to how Sparta had actually functioned. And yet despite that, and maybe because of that, its allure remains all the more potent. It is Sparta that provides the theme for 300, a film so fascist that <laughs> it's actually, when you watch it, it's kind of jaw-dropping. It's like a parody of the liberal values that you normally get in Hollywood's historical epics. And I think that that is why I have a particular fascination with antiquity and with the, the early Middle Ages, because the myths are harder to dispel than in more recent periods of history precisely because in many ways the concrete has set so solidly that they have become history. And that is particularly and clearly the case, I think, with, um, with periods that remain enshrined to this day as golden ages. So the Augustan period would be one. Augustan retains its sort of charisma as an adjective describing a golden age. And the reason for that is Augustus, the first of the uh, Roman emperors, did indeed succeed in establishing peace over the Roman world that previously had been engulfed by civil war. But more than that, he established a myth about himself that continues to uh, dazzle over the centuries. And to ground that in solid foundations, he and the the writers, the poets, the historians that he sponsored rewrote the history of Rome. So essentially, almost everything that people know about the early history of Rome, Romulus and Remus, Aeneas, all that crew, it was essentially defined for us by writers in the Augustan period. So there is a sense in which the early history of Rome exists as a utopia fashioned by the ideologues of the Augustan age. That's one example, but Augustus, you know, in a sense, he's history. There are other utopias fashioned by ancient empires, or at least ideals of, of utopias, that continue to exert a, a profound influence to this day. And the most obvious one would be the state established by Muhammad, supposedly in Medina, which continues to inspire billions of people across the globe and to act as a geopolitical motor to this day. Now, the question of whether Muhammad established a state in Medina is massively open to question. But what we can see when we trace the evolution, the process by which this state came to be enshrined, what we see is that there was an enormous amount of ideological programming going on by the empire 
of the Arabs that had been raised in the aftermath of Muhammad's career and which justified its imperial sway and justified its moral mission in terms of what the caliphs and the lawyers and the scholars who lived in the caliphate in the two centuries after Muhammad existed looked back to this period and constructed a model of how Islam had come into being and how Muhammad had lived and functioned and the character of his prophetic inspiration that gave to the foundation of the caliphate a literally God-given sense of identity. An Islam, I think, now that Marxism essentially has, 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 has imploded as an ideology, Islam exists as the most potent illustration of how utopia can legitimize empires in the past but continue to exert an influence to this day. So utopias, I think, and the rewriting of history to illustrate that utopias did actually exist, it's an incredibly significant aspect of history. Yeah. yeah. I mean... In the, European con in the European context, if you raise the question, I mean, we have, say, two rather good you know, candidates. We have Trump and we have Boris Johnson, as we, as we said, both attempting to use a, 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 kind of, a kind of history to sort themselves out. But the European one seems to be the most sort of striking here because on both sides of the referendum debate, such as it is, you'll have two, two groups both appealing to a different kind of golden age that may or may not have existed, a sort of a, a peaceful, you know, a European bureaucrat thing, and if, you know, there was a, somehow there was a peaceful period, sort of on the Augustan model, really, you know, we can, we can, can create peace in, in, in Europe, and we have, and then, and then other people saying, no, you know, you've snuffed out all our national identity, everything that makes us what we are, and um, they're appealing to a, to a different one. Yeah, I mean, these are very deep feelings, I think, and, and often difficult to get at, and, and I think sometimes historians are regarded as those people you really do not want at your dinner party who will ruin any conversation <laughs> by saying, you know, I'm sorry, but that train doesn't run on a Tuesday, so you couldn't have been stuck on it. And, you know, I mean, you said you went to Bognor Regis in the summer, but, you know, you couldn't have done because, you know, it was closed because of the plague or something. Um, you know, was the, it the, a trope? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, so we, we, we are sort of... But it, I think it's very necessary that we, we do try and dispel some of these myths because they're very powerful and they're very potent. And I think you're absolutely right. I think in the debate over um, Britain's relationship with the European Union, there is a sort of tendency on the one hand to, to, to say all the good things that have happened are because of Europe, we've finally become part of the continent, and a tendency on the other hand to say we have lost so much. You know, we were this sceptered isle, we were this, you know, there's a lot of talk about the Elizabethan age, I've noticed in this. You know, there, there was this wonderful time where we ran our own affairs and we were independent and we didn't have to listen to what those foreigners said. And also, but in both, I think, um, both for and against, there, there is also this sense that there was once a time where bureaucrats never bothered us. You know, the world just went along and no one ever told us and there weren't silly health and safety things. And, you know, listen to us, it will be different. Well, Bor Boris Johnson is very keen on that. Um, I mean, he's always, I, I, he did a program about the Roman Empire and said that, you know, the Roman Empire was run by about 30 people. What, look at all these Brussels bureaucrats. Yeah. And I think he's now started moving on to the Indian civil service, which is <laughs> as an illustration of it. And Penny Mordaunt came out with the extraordinary observation that um, it was great, you know, with looking, look at Dunkirk. It was tough to withdraw, but it was 
by God, we stood alone, yeah. which again, I suppose, is a kind of utopian moment, isn't it? Yeah. Very well then, alone, that famous cartoon. Yeah. I mean, that sort of hovers behind yeah. it. There's sort of the Dad's Army version, too. Yeah. Of, of, it's sort of in there somewhere that we all pull together. And, and, and there is, I mean, it's interesting. Historians are, are very slow. We, we don't join organisations very easily, but there is a group... There are two groups of historians now, one for one, historians for Britain who are for getting out and historians for Europe, I think. Who are staying um, in. Yes. Who, for obvious, but but I mean, some of the arguments are, are, again, very utopian. I mean, there's one man I, I sort of was asked to talk to on a, on a BBC thing because I'm a Canadian, so I think I was meant to be the voice of the Commonwealth, who said, you know, as soon as we get out of the European Union, we, we are, he said, we are a rising power. We're being hampered by the European Union. As soon as we get out, we will soar to the leader of becoming leaders as we should be of the Anglosphere in the world. And the Canadians and the Australians and New Zealand will, will, will flock to, to take our leadership. <laughs> well, I'm glad you... Because I said... I mean, you know, we have an expression in Canada, you're dreaming in technicolour. And <laughs> it was a bit rude, but I just thought, you know, I mean, this... Well, this, this is a utopian vision. But, but, but utopias also exist in the future. Yeah. And it's often a dialogue between sort of fantasies about the future with the past. Yes. And that was evident in the Scottish referendum as well. Yeah. That the advantage that... Um, people who wanted independence Scotland has was that they could draw on the past sort of shades of Bannockburn drifting around while simultaneously projecting fantasies of what a future independent Scotland would be like onto and the same thing I think is you know that now um, independent you know Britain free of of the shackles of Brussels can appeal to the same constituency exactly that it's absolutely it's 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 all that kind of Elizabethan stuff, uh, Waterloo, all that you know, Dunkirk. Simultaneously, it's Britain as a young country forging links with the okay. BRICS and well, the well, Anglosphere. I, well, can I take the position perhaps against, against you both and say, actually, should we, when when politicians start using historical analogies, should we just sort of put our hands up and say, you know, we we we, we don't we don't want to we don't want to hear this because they're all they're all more likely to deceive. Than to, than, than, than to than no, to because, because that's the, the absolute fascination of history, is, is that it's always in a dialogue with the present and in occasions like the referendum with the future. And so it's not just an academic subject. It's not just locked up in the seminar room. These are live issues. Yeah, but, the, but there is that school, I mean, it's more in your, in your zone. Is it called... Godwin's Law, which, 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 which says that whenever you have a, a, well, yes, a, an, online, an online chat conversation, as soon as someone starts comparing something to the Third Reich or to Hitler... Well, it's, it's, any, mention no, no, Hitler, it's any mention of Hitler, and of course with the European debate, Hitler comes up all, all the time, the because if so you want said, to stay in, you know, if, we, if we leave, then immediately the Third Reich will start invading <laughs> Poland again. But equally, you know, if we get out, uh, then we'll be back we, to we, the age of Dunkirk. But I think, I mean, I think analogy we all use analogies, I mean, because we have so much information, we have to say, oh, this is like that, and this, you know, we, we try and sort out what is bombarding us. But I think what you have to do is challenge one analogy with another. And, you know, there's a very interesting example of this when, when the United States was talking about whether to escalate in Vietnam in 1965. The analogy that was used predominantly in the State Department was, we can't have another Munich. We can't have another Munich. Well, look what happened with appeasement. There was one man... I think, George Ball, who knew Asia, which the rest of them didn't. They were happily using their analogies and didn't know a thing about Asia. And he said, there is another analogy we might want to think about, and that is the French in Indochina, um, who lost. (laughs) And he was dismissed, and people said, oh, that was different. Where the Americans, they were the French. Um, Did you see the, um, the, the Syrian ceasefire, what was it, a couple of weeks ago, was signed in Munich? And I thought one lesson of history is don't sign a piece of paper in Munich. Yeah. 
But, you know, I think we have to chat. I mean, I think it, it's somehow better not to just say your analogy is totally wrong, but say, look, let's think of it in another way. But, yeah, but, but also that, that, that history is not just about the raw material, no. the, the, the stuff in archives. It is about myth to a degree. I mean, it, well, it, it is always about... More in your... More in your well, uh, yeah, but, no, but I think, you know, you look at the way that the Second World War yeah. is, exists in the imagination of yeah. our country... That is an objective fact, that the, that the mythology of the Second World War is a crucial part of okay, our let political me, discourse. Let me, let me then just rephrase that, that point, which is one of the problems of dealing with history is that because people know so little of it, they always default to Hitler or to Stalin or whatever, or, or, and they know about um, Dunkirk, but they don't know about the French and Indochina. And there's so much of the stuff that could be analogous if you were in a seminar room, if you were talking about what, that, that, what most people just don't know about. So they're very easily gulled by history because they know so little of it. And I think a lot of... Yeah, I think you're right. And I think a lot of politicians don't know, but they know what they want to use. Yeah. And they will use it. But, I, you know, and I, and I think that the sort of people jump from one thing to another. I mean, if I hear once more that the First World War led directly to the Second World War... I'll throw something, because, you know, there are 20 years in between. So what was everyone doing for 20 years? You know, the, the, this has become an easy, it's an easy way, and, I, and I, I can't, when people say, oh, well, it's just history repeating itself. You know, history doesn't repeat itself. Things are different each time round, although there are parallels. But what we need to do is look at the similarities but be aware of the differences. And this sort of lazy thing of saying, what can you do? History's bound to repeat mm-hmm. itself means we, we just give up. It's about to make you feel gloomy as a historian because you know, Margaret's book is the most fantastic demolition of the of the of the idea that the, um, the Second World War felt I mean, felt directly as a consequence of, 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 of the first. And yet, as you say, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem this effect on the discourse when you just as you're about it must be disappointingly small. Absolutely <laughs> minuscule. No, nobody pays the slightest attention to me. But uh, but you, we, I think we have we, I think we have to keep trying, and I think we have to not let politicians get away with lazy analogies. And you know, so often, and you've talked about this, politicians will wrap themselves in the mantle of the past, and they will say, you know, really, I'm just like Churchill. Well, I think we could at least say which Churchill you're talking about, because not all of his career was, was an unmitigated success. But, I mean, one, one, of, the, um, one of the consequences of uh, the defeat of Nazism was to, um, I think, to impose on Europeans an anxiety about the kind of national myths that had achieved their most horrifying efflorescence in Nazism, and that has been an aspect of historiography since the Second World War, has been a suspicion of any hint of utopianism in national stories. So although you know, the kind of books that I was reading for, it, aimed at children, it still preserved that kind of, of structure. And although you know, a hankering after it, it clearly exists even in the levels of sort of education departments, government education departments. There is a nervousness about that. Mm-hmm. And you look at the, for, you know, the historiography of uh, the Middle Ages and what's striking about it compared to um, books about the Middle Ages written before the Second World mm-hmm. War is the, is the questioning of any notion that, say, the modern German state or Italy is to be traced back to some primal moment, you know, (laughs) before the Roman Empire or something. I always think it's dangerous when people say the origins of this are lost in the mists of time. It basically means you don't have to prove it. It's it's lost. But I I think one of the best things that's happened in history is that, and I think the Europeans have really led the way on this, is increasingly they've looked at transnational history. They've looked at things that have crossed borders. They have not looked... I mean, before 1914... 
pretty much all history taught in European schools was national history. So if you were a little Prussian or German school child, you learned Prussian or German history, you learned English history, you learned French history, but you didn't learn the history of Europe as a whole. And I think the teaching of history and the writing of history has changed a lot. And I think there's been a very conscious effort to try and use history to bring people together. And so the French and the Germans, it'll take them a while, are writing a shared history textbook of their common past. Um, they've done the easy bit, which is post-1945, and they're now grappling with the more difficult bit before. But I do think, and I think in some of the commemorations for the First World War, there have been attempts made to cross borders and to have a shared commemoration, just saying it was a catastrophe for everyone, and people suffered in similar ways on both sides of, for example, the Western Front. So I think history can be quite helpful in reminding us that we're not put into little boxes, and, and nations don't have separate histories. They're often affecting each other, and they're affected by trends from outside. I mean, I think medieval history does that much more, because it's before yeah. the nation-state becomes so strong. Yeah, although I, there is always England and Denmark. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think um, we've heard enough from me, oh. and I think we will ask uh, other... Uh, We'll ask questions. We'll get questions from you, I think. And there will be someone who might like to ask one. And if they won't, I'll be very disappointed. And I'll ask something really boring. And we'll talk very slowly. <laughs> we'll, talk, we'll talk very slowly. <coughs> now, there's a, there's, a, there's a lady here who's going to gratify us <coughs> by asking a question. Um, do you think that history can ever be objective, that it can be completely free of the influence of whoever's writing it, or indeed whoever's reading it? No. Um, because I think the, the, the very process of writing... The ambition to write history with a measure of objectivity is itself not culturally neutral. Um, I, I, this was sort of brought home to me very powerfully when I was writing, whenever I write about uh, Christian or Muslim narratives. Um, I recognise that the kind of history I aspire to is on the Thucydidean model. And Thucydides, whether he was an atheist or not, we don't know. But it, essentially, his, his model of history is, is atheistic in that, in the sort of literal sense, that the gods do not operate. They do not intervene. They are not a factor. Thucydides attempts to explain what happens in his historical account purely in terms of human functioning. And that model of history is obviously much older than the strain of monotheistic history that really is born with Eusebius in the 4th century, biographer of Constantine, but also writes a history of the early church, which is incredibly useful as a record of it, but is absolutely shaped by his conviction that God is intervening in human affairs. And so it reintroduces that sort of supernatural dimension that Thucydides had, had, had purged and that is a strain of, of history writing that lasts in the West really up until I suppose uh, the, the 18th, 19th century and even then the, the process by which a Thucydidean model is re-enshrined actually doesn't emerge from historians looking to the classical models and emulating it. It emerges from the way in which Christian writers looking at, say, the Bible, at the fact that there's an Old and a New Testament, that there are four different accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, that there are books within the Bible written at different times by different people, obviously following different agendas. The Church Fathers had recognised that and had adopted various historical methods to 
enable them to analyse how the Bible had been put together. And essentially what happened in the 18th and then particularly into the 19th century was that that methodology was secularised. And it's that that then, that methodology then was um, adopted by historians of the classical world and then of the ancient world generally in the, and, and the Middle Ages. And it dovetailed with trends with sort of the historiography of more modern periods. Um, but obviously that methodology that, that, that we have inherited is absolutely ideologically driven. It reflects an assumption that, that, by and large, that gods do not intervene in human affairs, and that is not a neutral perspective. Mm. And I think to say history cannot be objective is not the same as saying that history is all just made up. And that's what people sometimes assume, you know, that, that it's all equally valid. And you know, you, people often say, well, history is written by the victors and it's always wrong. And I think you have good history and bad history, and we all bring our own points of view to it. I, I bring a point of view as a Canadian woman and, you know, of a certain age. I'm bound to do that. But I try and write the best history I can. And I think there's a real difference between saying history is never fully objective because, of course, and I, the facts I select and the things I choose to write about reflect my own interests. But I do think that's not the same as saying that all history is totally uh, relative. Um, that, that in fact there is good history and bad history and bad history ignores the uncomfortable facts and the uncomfortable things that don't fit in. I think good history treats the evidence seriously. I mean, We've all had this experience as historians. We all struggle with it. You have a wonderful idea. You start to write a book and you come across something which totally undermines your idea and you're going to have to rethink it. But you have to do it. You, know, you can't fit things in just because you have a particular point of view. So I do think we keep on striving. But I think there's also a fallacy that there is something called the true picture of the past. There is no true picture of the present. There are pictures which incorporate certain things and don't incorporate others, but we would never agree in this room on what our present is. We all have different perspectives on it. We may agree on certain key facts about it, but how we interpret those, how we put them together, and I think it's the same with the past. You know, there are many pasts out there, but there are some versions of the past which simply are more plausible than others, and I think that's what we strive for, and I think the versions that incorporate as much as possible. I mean, one of the great changes in history, which I find very welcome, is that we've moved from looking at constitutional and political history, which tended to be about power structures, which are very important. But we've looked more and more about ideas. There's now a very interesting history of emotions. We're looking at how people feel. We're looking at how, what their tastes were. We're looking at what they ate. We're looking at the experience of all sorts of different people. I think history is much richer as a result. I mean, I think the more we can expand history and the more we can bring things in as proper subjects of historical study, the, 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 the fuller a picture we'll have of the past. But I think also, I mean, it's sort of interesting. Umberto Eco died, what, a couple of days ago? And his great theme really was the difficulty of writing anything, certainly about the medieval and the ancient past, that, that wasn't in some sense fictional. And that was why he wrote The Name of the Rose as well as, 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 as objectively historical accounts. And he was a part of a kind of, you know, an intellectual tradition that question the very reliability of language as a medium for expression. So I think that that has been influential certainly on historians of antiquity and, and the Middle Ages, a, a consciousness of the way in which there is an inherent fictionality about almost anything that you write about it. Isn't there just, well, I mean, you, can it be objective? Isn't there one of the problems, particularly again in this European debate, that some ways of telling history are fundamentally more entertaining than others? Mm -hmm. And, and you, uh, so saying that the, 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 second world war, the First World War did not lead directly to the second 
is fundamentally less entertaining than saying that, um, that Versailles led directly to Hitler. Hitler. The reason why people still believe the one and, and is because, frankly, it's a sort of easier, more dramatic and better, better story. And one of the problems, you know, is, is the historians, is that the better they get at it, as it were, the, sometimes the, the less... Um, purchase they have on the, on the public well, mind in general. It's a simpler explanation, isn't yeah. it? It's, a, it's an explanation you can sum up in a sentence. Yeah. And we all want, I mean, you know, we, we all want simple explanations. You yeah. know? And, and, and one of the things, I mean, I sort of encountered again and again, because I, I wrote a, a book about the origins of the First World War, which got longer and longer and longer, and I didn't come up with any particular conclusion. I just said it's a complicated subject, which isn't very satisfactory. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I would, and I would get time and again people saying, well, I've read your book, and I just have one question who do you think started it? <laughs> I said, you know, I've just spent 800 pages saying I don't know. Um, but there is this, you know, we want to know. We want, you know, is there a Santa Claus? You know, mm. why does this happen? Why are there bad people in the world? We, we want to know why things happen, I think. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and Hitler, I mean, in terms of striking his... Hitler put a huge amount of effort, didn't he, in order to find... Tacitus is Germanic. Well, it was Himmler. Well, it was Himmler, that's it was right. Himmler, Himmler, Himmler. Himmler did you that. Yeah. That's not a bad story in this context, because that's oh. someone, one lot of people, 2,000 years later, looking for a history book in order yeah. to, to back up... Um, yes, um, and, he, and Himmler identified strongly with um, Henry the Fowler, who was father of Otto the Great, who founds the Holy Roman Empire. And um, Henry the Fowler buys the, the, the Spear of Destiny, um, which is supposed to have pierced the side of Christ... And Otto the Great then carries it into battle and defeats the Magyars and uses it to affirm his primacy as the most Christian king of Europe and refound the Roman Empire. And this entire mythology has grown up well, after the war that, that yeah. um, you know, the Anschluss existed, happened because Hitler wanted to seize control of the Spear yeah. of Destiny. So, it's all yeah. wholly bogus. Yeah, that's right, but I'll make it slightly different, yeah. which, which is not, I mean, yes, yeah, symbols are obviously very, very, very important. But the point about the Tastus Germania, it was a book, it, and it was a book that described the early origins of the German people in a way that very much suited Himmler to, to believe was true. So it was a, and there was a huge effort just trying to, to get this history book, wasn't there? Anyway, there was, there was, there was but, the, but the other problem that, that, that um, Himmler had, which infuriated Hitler, was that Himmler was always sponsoring archaeological digs to demonstrate the <laughs> magnificent quality of early Aryan civilization, and they turned up some crummy pot or something, <laughs> and Hitler, Hitler says, is that all you've got? Come on! There's a gentleman out there, we... we, we um... It's another Godwin lawyer that the, the person asking the question will always be furthest from the mic- microphone. <laughs> I wanted to ask a question uh, in in relation to a film that came out last year called Suffragette. Um, It came in for quite a lot of criticism on the basis that it was um, essentially about a group of suffragettes based in Bethnal Green, and there were no black characters in it, uh, which I found slightly odd uh, in the sense that uh, there may not have been that many black characters around at the time that were active in the movement. Um, do you find it slightly dangerous that we, we're sort of trying to impose these politically correct contemporary narratives in certain historical situations where they're not valid? And if so, does that not, only, does that not really devalue the, the journey that we've been on since that point to the present day? Well, I, unfortunately, I haven't seen the movie, which doesn't stop me from having strong opinions on it. But, um, um, no, I, I mean, I think that does worry me. And, I mean, we at the moment in Oxford have a rather complicated dispute about a statue um, you may have heard of. Um, it's a statue of Cecil Rhodes, which most of us didn't know was there because it's very high up on a building on the high street. It's been under scaffolding for the last three years. 
but it has become the subject of, of sort of repeated demonstrations and demands that it be taken down. In the course of this, Cecil Rhodes has been accused of all sorts of things, um, including advocating genocide, um, having politically incorrect views of all, all sorts. And that's where I part. You know, I, I can see that sim statues are very potent symbols. And you know, at the end of the Second World War, it probably was a good idea to take down statues of Hitler, um, which dotted a lot of Europe. But, but if we start judging people of 100 years ago by the standards we have today, we're going to be judged, you know, ourselves. 100 years from now, people are going to say, how could people have gone to the LSE and listened to that stuff? You know, whatever. You know, that we will be judged, um, you know, for things we didn't even realize were, were, were not suitable. So I know it worries me very much. And it happens, I mean, the movies do it a lot. Um, I mean, some of you may have seen, there was a Robin Hood a few years ago with Kevin Costner. And Maid Marian was a feminist. And Kevin Costner was a deeply caring um, sympathizer of feminism. And they'd also introduced a Moorish character um, in order to have a black American actor in it. It was, you know, you, you could understand the motivation, but it, it, it went too far, I thought. And so I know, I, I think, I, I find this attempt to, to, to read back into the past, and we're not in the, you know, we, we shouldn't be in the business of sort of ticking off boxes and saying, oh, you, you get points for being ahead of your time and being politically correct. And I'm sorry, you know, you're, you're into the dustbin of history because you had the wrong ideas. I don't know well, I, I have seen the film, and yeah. I actually really enjoyed it. And um, my daughters came out fired with feminist vigour, which I you know, mm -hmm. splendid. But w one thing that struck me about it was that the husband of the uh, heroine, who is uh, working class, both working class, I think, I, and, and he, she, they're lying in bed, and she asks him, you know, what, what, what is it like to vote? And he, he describes it. I don't think he would have had the no, vote, no, would he, no, at the time? No, no. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, from the historian's point of view, I was thinking, well, that's a, that's you know, that's a real problem because actually, um, the, the injustice that was done to working-class men is being written out of this story. Yeah. But simultaneously, I had to look at the fervour with which my daughter was haranguing me for sexism yeah. uh, and think, well, this is probably a good thing, yeah. keeping yeah. me on my toes. So it's difficult. Yeah. I mean, I. I, I a good example of this is the um, the the the, um, the focus that uh, Muslim Spain has been given, mm. because obviously there is the more Muslims there are in, in in Europe, the more desire there is to find examples of Muslims and Christians and Jews all getting on. It's kind of what we want. Um, and that's our ambition for the future. And so we look back to the past to try and find some example of this. And Al-Andalus has been absolute, you know, the image of it is it's a peaceable, multicultural society in which Jews and Muslims and Christians gather around tinkling fountains to munch on oranges and yeah. discuss Aristotle. Yeah. And it's all brilliant. Yeah. Al-Andalus was an imperial state that depended on Muslim supremacism, there were pogroms of Jews, Christians were subordinated, heads were cut off and hung from the main gates of Cordova. It was a brutal society. Really, the only multicultural activity that went on in Al-Andalus was the slave trade. The Christians would get the Slavs from their wars on the, 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 the Elbe frontier. Uh, they'd be brought to various cities in France where Jewish doctors would perform penoctomies on them. Uh, and they would then be sold to, uh, to, to the Muslims of Al-Andalus. Now, to say that oh, thank you. Okay. is not to say that Al-Andalus was uniquely 
oppressive. It wasn't. By the standards of the time, it was indeed very enlightened um, relative to other states within Europe. It was very sophisticated. It had libraries. It had all kinds of wonderful things. Exactly. Isn't someone going to stand up for but, the intellectual but, pluralism but, of, uh, of yeah, Cordoba? But, but, yes, yes. but <laughs> it, it does not provide multicultural Britain in 2016 with a model to emulate. No, but what it do- does show is it's possible for cultures to mingle and learn from each other, as, as the Balkans show and as the Ottoman... But, you know, but, but this idea it, but, that cultures but, but are that, separate... But, but what I think it also yeah. shows yeah. Is, yeah. That, is that, by <laughs> and large, a single culture... You know, that, that, that there is a dominant culture oh, yeah. that, that, that exists in a, a position of primacy to the others, and to ignore that is to discount yeah. lessons that I yeah. think still yeah. have a saliency to this day, yeah. because... There is no question in Al-Andalus that it is the Muslims who are firmly in control. You know, this is not... uh yeah. Not a multicultural paradise. No, but it was, you can have a, multi, a, not a state that isn't multicultural, which still is intellectually has an extraordinary degree of, yes, of multicultural. Yes. And I think that's more important, really, than what, who, what happened to the slaves, personally. But anyway. Uh, hello. Um, you, you talked about the myths of the past uh, through the lens of a, of a liberal democracy. Can you tell us a bit about the distinction between the forging of myths... Uh, by liberal democracies on the one hand compared with those forged by totalitarian states more recent and ancient uh, what the distinctions are between those two interesting Um, I would say it's more difficult to forge such myths in liberal states because there are a plurality of voices and one of our, our core values is that there should be a free and open debate whereas in totalitarian states um, there can be tremendous power and pressure in, exerted by the government to create these myths. It's not that liberal democracies don't have their own myths. They do, but I think they are more open to questioning. I mean, if you, if you look at the way in which totalitarian states, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons they're totalitarian by definition, is because they want to impose a particular narrative on both the past and, and, and the present. And the ways in which they do this the, the, the Chinese, um, the first emperor to, to unite China, the Qin Emperor in 221 BC, was very well aware of the power of the myth, and he called in all the existing histories of China, and he called in all the existing historians, and he burnt the histories and killed the historians, and then wrote his own. And you know, so I think the capacity that very powerful states have to do this is much greater than liberal democracies, which doesn't mean we don't have our own myths. Yeah, I. I I think so, and I think also that, 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 that there are periods where the cast of thought is is kind of ahistorical. Uh, and I, I, I've come increasingly to the conclusion that almost all the narratives um, that explain how states emerged from the collapse of the Roman Empire are not actually history at all, but meditations on Exodus. Because the understanding at the time is that events on earth mirror patterns that are supernatural, that are uh, embodied within the mind of God. Um, So Muhammad going from Mecca to Medina, the Hijra, I mean, essentially that means exodus. That would be one example. But another one would be the founding of England. You know, we have an idea from Bede that... um, the English, the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes are a, a chosen people favoured by God and they get given a land that the Britons, the inhabitants have forfeited. 
they therefore they like Moses coming from Egypt and leading the children of Israel up to the borders of the of the promised land they have to cross the seas to come to it and to take it I increasingly wonder whether that is not entirely mythical that the evidence seems to be stacking up that there were people speaking a form of proto-English in Britain even before the Romans came and yet the potency of that myth told by Bede has been such that we tend to everyone pretty much still takes that for granted and the fact that it evolved from a cast of mind, a kind of a, a theological way of understanding the world, has been completely forgotten. Mm. I wonder, well, behind your question was this notion, though, was a fear that you sometimes hear, that liberal democracy, one of the weaknesses of liberal democracies is that they don't have this kind, this kind of found, this founding myth. So in any sort oh, of... Oh, I co- think they do, though. Well, well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of, basically, it's Whiggish, isn't it? It's, well, well, yeah, but is it as powerful as, 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 as some of the things that are, ch- that are ch- chucked against it? It's quite curious, again, in, in this whole uh, referendum you know, debate, that we're suddenly... The people who are believing in sort of attacking continental um, ideologues go back to the time when, frankly, you know, Elizabeth, time Elizabeth I, when we just no, had but, an alternative but, but, but continental was, ide- yes, ideologue. Gordon Brown talking about the golden thread of liberty going back to Runnymede. And yeah, there have been, all, you know, there have been people who trace it <clears> even <throat> further back in time, the Norman Yoke and everything. But in, Amer- you know, in America the, too. The, the, very, the, the, the Americans the, are very keen on doing I this. Think, but, but, uh, but I think it depends a bit on your history because the United States, I mean, some countries have great dramatic moments. You know, they have a French Revolution, or in the case of the Americans, they have the Boston Tea Party, then they have the War of Independence. And I think those do become part of the national character and the national myth. And they, 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 I mean, I don't mean that they're not true when I say they're myth. They're just part of the story people tell about themselves and a very important part. But there are other countries, and Canada's very much like this. We don't have any such moments. We have moved rather slowly in a very boring way. Um, well, when I was young, I used to think Canadian history is very boring, and now I think it's actually rather wonderful because we don't have revolutions, we don't have civil wars, we don't have great founding moments. We have moved, and Australia has been much the same, and New Zealand, we've moved incrementally towards full independence. In Canada and Australia, we still have, the heads of our state are still called governors general. Uh, but none of us find it odd. I mean, we know we're independent, but we don't have these great moments. And, and we have a problem. And uh, the last government in Canada, not the one that is currently in, but the last one, which was a conservative government, kept on trying to find national myths and actually made a fool of itself. I mean, they tried to find, the, there was something called the War of 1812, which you wouldn't know about because only Canadians know about, um, when a few Americans tried to invade what were then British colonies and were sent packing, mostly by British regular forces and by uh, native Canadians, and the Canadian government of the time, the Harper government, tried to turn this into our war of independence and tried to say that the brave Canadians all got together and fought the Americans off. And they were laughed at because it wasn't true and we knew it wasn't true. And so and I don't think all liberal democracies have to have these moments. I mean, you, perhaps we were lucky that we escaped some of these dramas. I mean, I think, I think in, in, uh, in England and then Britain, um, the same is true since the Civil War, that we pride ourselves on the fact that we haven't had revolutions and violent upheavals and I think that that is part of the subtext of why people were so upset at the thought of roads going being toppled torn down because it it, it wasn't so much that people cared about roads per se I'm you know most people except he probably wasn't wasn't a very pleasant person but that 
the idea of toppling statues, it's the kind of thing that people do in France yeah. or Ukraine yeah. or <laughs> South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, we don't, right. because we have seamlessly moved forward on yeah. a flood tide of liberty. It's mm. a very <laughs> Whiggish notion. Yeah. And in a sense, that, that, is, that, that idea, although we may laugh at it, is absolutely provides the sort of animating ideal for people who want to leave the European Union. It's about sort of saying, you know, we want to get back. We are autonomous. We, we have these traditions. We don't, you know, we didn't get occupied. We didn't have to pull down the statues of our leaders. Yeah. Leave us alone. And in a sense, the Scottish referendum was, was interesting on that as well, because it was about questioning that narrative. Mm. It, was, it was about saying that, you know, the, this idea that, that, that since the civil wars going through the 18th and into the 19th and 20th centuries, that, that, that it's been a story of, of, of life in Britain getting better, mm. franchisement and all that kind of thing, that uh, welfare state and so on, that, that that model is now bust yeah. and that we need to get back and, and recalibrate that. Mm. So I think that, 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 that the myths that liberal democracies such as Britain tell about themselves are actually incredibly potent and, mm. and, 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 and you know, there is a lot to fight there. Certainly, yeah. you put it very well. I think that was a, a potent expression of... Uh, Potent hand up Potent there. hand up there. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you can pursue this idea of exceptionalism, this, uh, this phrase that uh, Americans are always <clears throat> talking about, a people chosen by God. Of course, the same applies to Israel, the same applies here, the same applies particularly right now with those who say we should leave the European Union. We're a people chosen by God who can stand on our own, etc., etc. But do, do most people, in fact, most other peoples other than those three that I've mentioned, do they think themselves exceptional in the same way? Oh. If they're Christian... Uh, the, the temptation to cast yourself as a chosen people, I think, has been irresistible to pretty much every uh, Christian yeah. polity. They, everyone at some stage seems to have bought into that uh, myth right the way up into the present day. And one of the interesting things that happens in the 19th century, and I hesitate to go into modern history with Margaret sitting on my right, but um, is the way in which that, that the myth or the biblical myth of Exodus and Joshua of a chosen people being given a land by God fused seamlessly with Darwinism and the idea that there were certain people who were fit, who were just, you know, that, that, that they were therefore entitled to replace lesser breeds. Um, and that kind of underlay a lot of American history, the notion of a manifest destiny. It certainly was, was sort of hovering there in the in, in, in imperial ideologies, and I suppose its most recent manifestation was in South Africa, and the collapse of apartheid really, I think, ended that idea of people being a, cho a people chosen by God, I, in the literal sense. I mean, I think it, I think it terminated it for good. Yes, I'm, yeah, I, I think you. I mean, I agree with you. I think you also get a sense with a lot of people they've been chosen by history. Um, you know, history in a way has come yeah. to replace God. History is this great force which sort of moves Hegelian through. Force. Yes, that, that moves through and, and that, you know, they've been chosen by history and their history demands. I mean, I think you see that with Putin's Russia. Mm. I mean, he yes, takes... Putin, a, yes, and Putin has reinvoked God, yeah. hasn't he? And he's done a, yes, and he's yes. done a deal with the Orthodox Church, but he's very conscious of Russian history and he yes. calls on it the whole time. And again, it's the utopian thing because we were once great, we're going to do it again. And he once said to a visiting Canadian politician who was... St 
quite shocked by this. They were talking about something. Putin said, well, as my predecessor, Peter the Great, would have said. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, and all the soldiers who went into the Crimea were yeah. blessed formally yes. by, uh, yeah, by, so, by priests. Yeah. I mean, it, it also operates in a Muslim form. The idea of the Ummah, the people, the Muslim people, is obviously incredibly potent. Mm. Um, the idea, and that, in a way, is, is, is a kind of reverse. It's, it, that, that the idea of dividing up the Ummah, the Muslim people, into competing little nation statelets is regarded as a great heresy, and so the, the, sort of the appeal of, of the caliphate is a very enduring one. I wonder um, if you might think, I mean, the most terrifying one recently of that was, uh, was Tony Blair's extraordinary wanting to believe that, that somehow the hand of... We used the phrase, the hand of history, didn't we, when, from the... Well, from I, the I, I, I'm not sure that's the most terrifying. I would say well, that ISIS is probably the most no, terrifying. No, no, no. Well, let, let me... OK, let me... Th- he, Tony Blair is one of many politicians who wants to feel, even if his country isn't exceptionalist, which his sort of socialist career might think was not, was not, was not right, but, or his uh, particularly Europeanism, but he did want to believe that he was an, uh, <laughs> uh, an instrument of, of, of history and that somehow he was there at the time to do the, you know, to do the right thing. It was very clear during yeah. the, the Iraq yeah. War that yeah. that's what he thought. So, and what was so curious was he didn't actually know much history. No. And he didn't seem to want to no, know it. I think it, it helped, actually. I think I think, the, I think the, to, to, to feel the hand of yeah. history on you, it's almost, it's almost absolutely essential that you, don't, that you don't know any. I mean, there was, yeah, yeah, there was this, I mean, I think it's a true story. Um, and I don't blame people for not knowing this, but he, I think he should have done. And he was talking to someone about Iran, and he said, remind me again, who was that fellow Mossadegh? Yeah. And Mossadegh was, you know, the nationalist prime minister was overthrown in 1953. It's a huge event in Iranian history. So, I mean, I think you need to know, if you're dealing, you know, with the Middle East, you need to know some of these things. I, I mean, there's an interesting uh, story told by Michael White, a uh, Guardian yeah. columnist this week, where he described being on a, a plane with Blair and saying, you really should know some more history. Here, read this, and gave him a history book. And um, Blair didn't read it. Do you know what the history book was? Rubicon by me. Oh, yeah. oh. that's why I know. Show off. Show off. Well, I, I could add one thing to this. This did take. Like, I was actually in with Blair just before the Iraq, just before the Iraq War, in his office in Downing Street, and the street lights went out. And I didn't really have anything much to say. And I said, "Oh, the lights are going out all over Europe." Yeah. And he looked at me completely <laughs> oh, blank. Dear. Oh dear. Oh dear. To follow up, I mean, you know, in terms of, 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 of nightmarish expressions of this, ISIS is, abs- is absolutely utopian. It, the idea that, they, you know, they, they, they are absolutely explicit about the fact that they want to get back to the primal condition, the foundational condition, the prophetic state that existed under Mohammed and his immediate successors. And everything that is happening in Syria and in Iraq and their ambitions for the broader world is mediated through a particular understanding of a particular moment in history. So, they're, they're, you know, Dabiq, their online magazine, their glossy monthly magazine, um, Dabiq is a place in Syria, a village where, according to an apocalyptic hadith of the prophet, uh, the Muslim people at the end of days will meet with the Romans. And the Romans are you know, NATO, it's the Western forces. And so we're, we're, yeah. the world yeah. as it exists today is being forced in a Procrustean manner into a kind of template fashioned out of 8th century apocalypticism. It's absolutely astonishing. There's a lady in red who may wish to ask about that or something else. 
Um, I actually hope to bring the topic back to the theme of Literary Week for a little bit on utopias. Because we've been discussing utopias now as, uh, no, not at all a comment on the discussion. <laughs> I'm enjoying myself a lot. Um, but we've been discussing utopias existing mainly in the past. Mr. Holland did make a comment saying, oh, utopias also exist in the future. But I wonder if there's such a thing as utopias being on a timeline either in the past or the future. Because isn't a utopia in the past already inherently projecting itself into the future? And anyone who is utilizing utopia right now is using the past as much as projecting into the future at the same time. Um, I don't think we can say there is such a thing as a separation between utopias being either in the past or the future. Um, I wonder if I could get some comments on this and also which well, part quite a big of the timeline we think. think is more potent. Oh, yeah? time, yes, well, they exist outside time. Okay, this is very theoretical, so we'll go for Tom Holland. Well, I, I mean, it, I, think it does, I think it does follow on from what I was just saying about ISIS, who, who are clearly the most utopianist organisation operating in geopolitics at the moment. I think that we should take what they say about wanting to usher in the end of days. Literally, I think lots of them do want to do that. And I think that, um, you know, they are not talking in a Marxist sense about material culture and the way that, you know, what would be the material basis for a utopia. They are talking about utopia in a, a divine sense. They are attempting to usher in heaven on earth and to make and to and to cast themselves as people who will inherit earth when they heaven when they die and their vision of the future is absolutely grounded in a particular understanding of a particular moment in the past because for islam more po probably than any other religious or uh, cultural ideology that has existed what islam has succeeded in doing is kind of dropping a sheet anchor to a particular moment, a particular time, and establishing that as a mirror into which humanity has to look to understand what the will of God is, what the nature of a utopia should be. So, in essence, the desire to recreate that moment is hardwired into Islamic utopianism, even I, I, more I, than it is with any sort of analogous tradition within I, Christianity. I, 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 would, I would like to quarrel with that, but I want... But, um, uh, no, but I, th I, th I think there are two kinds of utopias. There are the utopias that exist in the imagination or exist out of time or ex exist in, in another alternative reality. But I think those who talk about utopias often talk about a golden age in the past and something that will come again. So they're locating them very firmly in the course of human history. I mean, we may see their reasoning as absolutely wrong, and the utopias they project into the past or claim to know from the past mm. are not real at all. Um, but they're, they're, they're nevertheless, they're arguing that they are there in the past. They're saying, we have proof. They were there. We know that there was that world. It existed in time. And we are going to have another such world that will exist in future time. So I think they are very much part of, of, of woven into history. Well, I'm sympathetic to your view, because I think the language that people mm. use about these utopias is quite tricky in itself. And the only period of that that we studied recently, I don't know so much about ISIS, is, is all those people who supported George W. Bush you know, in, te in, in Texas, who certainly had the same language of the end time. And, yeah. uh, but it never, I was spent months there once trying to work out whether 
this was just a sort of film that was going on in their heads. Was, did they really believe it? Was it really action guiding on them in any way? I don't think it was, frankly. I think it, it existed in a completely outside of the... Yeah. Of, of, of time, it was like, a, it, and but you're, but you, the answer's lot maybe maybe different. Maybe but, they genuinely. But, maybe, but there's an element within within in American tradition because you have the the Constitution, mm. um, and this uh, the, the idealization of the founding fathers, and so there is you know this tradition within American legalism and politics that the Constitution provides the measure by which to judge how America can be perfect, yeah. and. That is something that we obviously don't have because we don't have a written constitution. But aren't we talking... I think in a way we're talking about two different things. I mean, utopias, I think the way they've been used by political forces are, are things that are promised. You are going to be living in an utopia. Whereas, I mean, I think a lot of what um, some of the Christian fundamentalists are talking about and possibly some of what the um, Islamic... Um, fundamentalists are talking about as well, is something that's out of time, it's salvation, yeah, well, it's another world altogether, well, well, it's the afterlife. I mean, that's the difference, prime difference between Christianity and Islam, is that Christianity, in that sense, is apolitical. Um, Jesus dies a political failure. He, you know, he does not draw his sword, he does not establish a state. His kingdom is in heaven. Yeah. And that means that there has always been this suspicion of political orders within Christianity that you do not have within Islam, where Muhammad supposedly established a state that serves as a model for, what, for how God wants humans to live. Yeah. And the, the fact that it is almost certainly a fiction doesn't alter the fact that lots and lots of Muslims throughout history, and certainly in the current time, believe in that and believe that what God wants is for this state that existed in early 7th century Medina to be re-established in whatever way it can be in the present. Does that... Does that I, I thought that was... By the, I to con congratulate my cousin. I thought that was quite a good answer to your question. Do you agree? Yes. Oh, good. Happy. There's a lady in brown here. I've, I've, sometimes you know what someone's going to question someone's going to ask. Do I, I think I could write down a bit of paper. OK. Oh, <laughs> Going back to achieving a happy state or a, a state of equilibrium among religions, I think we Could can... Could you speak into yeah. the microphone a bit? Thanks. I think we can say confidently that at different points in history that was achieved in Iran and certainly uh, up to 1979 it was a state of utopia that everybody lived happily alongside each other. But I think that was possible because um, it was under the umbrella that was called... So, sorry, can, can you have to... It was called, your, it was called uh, being Ira Iranian and speaking Persian primarily. They had that unity. But I wanted to ask you, do you think a historian should also be a linguist? I mean, Tom, you... Um, I admire your, your um, confidence in writing about Persian history. I don't believe um, many Iranians inside Iran, unfortunately, have read your books. But do you think you could, um, you could produce your, your history, writing of history, knowing some Persian? And the other thing I wanted to say is that I think it is a bit romantic to think uh, Britain could live happily within Europe 
being ordered about by European Parliament because I know in the Middle East, the Europeans, the West, always likes to think of the Middle East as one nationality, one culture. I know for a fact that the Arabs would never have the Persians, you know, dictating to them in a, in a way as to how they should govern themselves and so on. Be just, okay. uh, I think we're going a little well, bit into sort of pure politics rather, rather uh, than... But thank you. Uh, yes, the, the, the problem with writing certainly ancient, about the ancient Middle East is that there are an enormous quantity of, of, of ancient languages that ideally one would have to speak. Um, I, but I'm not, I do not have the linguistic genius that would enable me to learn all of these languages. And it is a, it, it's traditionally been a huge problem in, for scholars you know, who infinitely more distinguished than me, to understand how, for instance, the first Persian Empire functioned, because as well as, you know, you need Greek, clearly, because that's most of our sources are in Greek, but you need Hebrew, and you need Egyptian, and you need all kinds of different languages, as well as, as, as old Persian to understand that. So, yeah, I mean, I put my hand up for Persian, I absolutely rely on translations. But it's interesting that you, you, you describe Iran before 1979 as a kind of paradise because of course one word that I do know derives from old Persian is paradise and indeed it is Persia that gives to the world I think the idea that politics, the functioning of politics, the functioning of statecraft can have a moral dimension, a moral quality. I think that that is the great genius of the Achaemenid Empire, the first Persian Empire and we see it in the Bisitun inscription, this extraordinary record that Darius the Great puts up on a road going up through the Zagros Mountains, in which he describes his rule, his empire, his sovereignty over the world as embodying the truth and the order that exists in the heavens. That he is the agent of Hura Mazda, who is a god who is great because he is good. And that is the first expression that I am aware of in history where greatness is equated with goodness. And it's telling that Darius is, again, as far as I know, the first ruler to condemn another people for not worshipping his God and for telling his soldiers that they will, if they fall in battle, that they will go to heaven because they they, they are fighting in a righteous cause. So... more, the, more and more, the more I, I, um, I, I study antiquity, the more I find Persia seems to lie behind almost everything. But the problem is, is that we have so few records for it, and it's almost always mediated through its enemies, be it the Greeks, be it the Romans, be it the Arabs, that it, it's always kind of occluded. But I think that, that ultimately, if we're talking about the ultimate derivation of utopia in the sense of... A, an order that is perfectly moral, I think ultimately that goes back to, to, to Persia. So there is, and, and therefore there is a, a peculiar kind of irony about what happened in 1979 because the Ayatollah was influenced by two foreign models of utopia, one obviously being the Islamic one, the idea of, 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 of bringing to Iran the, the kind of utopia that supposedly had existed in the 7th century in Medina. But the other one, fascinatingly, is Plato, because the Ayatollah was strongly influenced by a 10th century Islamic writer who in turn had translated 
Plato's Republic into a kind of Islamic idiom. And so there is a sense in which, you know, it's, it's, there is no God but God and, and Plato is his prophet <laughs> going on about that. So in Iran at the moment, you do have, you know, you have the native Persian tradition of paradise, you have the Muslim one, but also intriguingly you have, you have the Greek one as well. The gentleman there, yes. Um, in danger of being asking for a simplistic answer. Oh, good. Um, we like those. In danger of that. Um, with regard to rewriting history and, and trying to bust myths, um, I wonder if any ideas that you'd have along the lines of um, I have a son who, you know, dragged away from his PlayStation and visiting a First World War battle site, and his maths is not that good, but it doesn't take a 14-year-old very long to work out that all of the people are you know, 16, 17, 18, etc., etc. So it's sort of, again, it's not a great example of war, but it, but it sort of, you know, definitely brings home the, the horrors and the reality of it all. And, and sort of certainly he then went on and read history, etc., etc., and had a different take on history. So how can, you know, with the EU referendum, etc., etc., how can we um, myth bust? And so people can, you know, reach the right conclusions <laughs> uh, well it, it, I guess you have to you have to you can't bust all myths but you have to choose which ones are, are important to deal with and it seems to me that you know one of the things I hope I mean I'm seeing this debate very much as an outsider I'm a Canadian curiously I think I can vote um, because there's some sort of Commonwealth arrangement which is very weird actually when <laughs> no but when people British citizens living abroad are not always going to be able to vote but and Europeans living in Britain are not always going to vote but anyway maybe the Canadians will decide it yet again <laughs> um, but you know I think what I hope will happen I mean so far the level of debate has not struck me as being very high if I may be rude um, but I, you know, what I hope will happen is there will be some serious examination of the pros and cons of staying in and going out at the moment what we're getting is Figures, for example, that 20% of all the people living in the UK were born outside the UK, um, you know, a lot of people seem to believe it's absolutely wrong. Um, you know, this, is, this is not particularly a historical myth. This is just you know, a sociological myth. And I hope that we will actually be able to get some examination. You know, one of the unfortunate things, it seems to me, with the whole debate over the referendum debate is it's got mixed up with the whole fear of migrants and refugees. And migrants and refugees are now mixed up as, as one thing. And there's a lot of, I think, unfounded fear of how many numbers there are. I mean, there was a story in The Guardian today that the British have accepted so far 30,000 of those who've applied as refugees to come um, from, from Syria and the Middle East. Um, you know, but there is this perception, I think, that there are far more, that Britain is being overwhelmed by these numbers. So what I'm hoping is, is that, you know, and I hope historians can help with this, but it'll have to be sociologists as well, economists, um, business experts. I hope that people will get enough information to be able to make an informed decision and that there will be some myth-busting along the way, I hope. I mean, one of the myth-busting is, is this notion of who's, who created the peace since the end of the war because these, the people who support us staying in or, or support the European Union tend to say, well, it was the European Union that kept peace in Europe and then because, largely because the Americans and the other, a lot of people in NATO didn't really want to ever boast about the fact that I mean, they, they were quite happy for somebody else to, to, uh, to take a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of the credit. So that's certainly... Uh, an area, you know, you hear, are we going to be safe or are we going to be not? Well, who is responsible for us being safe in the first place? There's not a very good debate about, about that. Well, I, my perspective on this is that, that ultimately, if, if you're faced with a myth, it can, it can be necessary to, to sort of fashion a myth yourself. 
And I, I experienced this very viscerally during the Scottish referendum because I was passionately opposed to Scotland leaving the UK. I really did not want it to happen. And the reason that I was so passionately opposed to that was that when I was in my late teens, I had become one of Wiltshire's few Scottish nationalists because I'd, I'd bought Alistair Gray's great novel, Lanark, and enjoyed it so much that I then started reading all his other non-fiction, which chiefly was, 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 was demand for Scottish independence. And I then moved on to Tom Nairn, um, who's written a series of, of, of absolutely compelling books in which he casts the United Kingdom as Eucania, a kind of Ruritanian uh, fossil that is frozen in the 17th century, a sort of early modern state, um, and, and, and casts the sort of idea of, of, um, of the Scots as a people yearning to escape the carapace of this oppressive early modern structure. And I completely bought into it and was utterly gung-ho for breaking up the UK and seeing workers' republics installed. And then I, I slowly started thinking, well, actually, this is, I, don't, I don't buy into this. And the thing that made me re- realise that was actually reading Linda Colley's seminal book, Britons, yeah. which talks about how a British identity was forged throughout the 18th century, um, forged out of Protestantism, out of um, expansion of the empire and hostility to the French. And, of course, of those three factors, two have gone. The hostility that the French, I think, to a degree still remains. Um, and, and the conclusion of many people to this was, well, in that case, the United Kingdom has served its time, you know, if these, if these structures have gone. But what I got was actually the United Kingdom, the notion of Britishness, is something that is capable of evolving. And if it could be fashioned in the 19th century, in the 18th century and 19th century, in such a way that people in this island could live together in peace and come together to forge the Industrial Revolution and victory in the Second World War and the welfare state, then if we can continue to do that, then what may we not achieve in the future? But it was evident that just rehashing the economic case for Scotland staying in the UK was insufficient. You know, it's, I mean, in the event it turned out to be, you know, it did, it did win the referendum, but it didn't win the hearts and minds. It, Project Fear did not succeed in those terms. So I... Force. I was obliged to do what, as 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 a someone of born in this country, I'm deep deeply reluctant to do, which was to actually think of the things that I admired about this country. Instinctively, my you know, I want to complain about it. I want to whinge about it. I feel much more comfortable doing that. But I had to think. Oh, yeah, actually, you know, if I'm going to say that we should stay together and that Britain is worthwhile and the United Kingdom does have something going for it, I'm going to have to think of why. And so I wrote an article for the New Statesman in which I talked, I, I, I traced what I saw as being correspondences between England and Scotland and made the case, which I believe in, that there are no two nations on the face of this earth which are more similar than the English and the Scots, and traced it as part of an exercise in state building that ultimately goes back to a time when England and Scotland were both United Kingdoms, forged in turn out of different states. And I had to propose this as a good, in a kind of Whiggish sense, that from all these various fragments that existed in the you know, in 10th century Britain, first England, then Scotland had emerged, and then England and, Scot- and Wales and Scotland had, had been forged together. And I had to present this in a kind of teleological sense. And I was aware as I was doing it that to a degree this had a kind of mythic quality. It's not the kind of thing that I think would win me... Uh, very good marks, probably in, in, in an Oxford tutorial. But I think that 
if one wants, you know, on, on the kind of existential level of should Britain stay in the European Union, should Scotland stay in the United Kingdom, or vice versa, it's not enough just to deal in facts. You do, to a degree, have to deal with questions of emotion and identity. And to that extent, you, know, you have to combat utopia with utopia. Can I build upon uh, what Tom Holden just last said? Because um, there seems to be consensus up until that last answer that a uh, historian's job is to myth-bust. Um, I was not writing that as, as a historian. I was writing that as a propagandist. Yes, yes, I know. And you're sort of... You were upbraiding yourself, too. But, but I, was, I think yes. I mean, it, it caused me... Ooh. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, a moment of doubt. But, um, I mean, some historians... It's not, not some historians, but, I mean... Surely in nations there's a sort of shared sense of memory. Um, Pierre Nora, you know, lines of memory, that sort of idea which France talks about. And, and if you myth-bust too much, is there a danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater? I'm thinking of Irish history in particular. And there's been, a, for the last 20, 25 years or so, a strong revisionist interpretation of Irish history, which has come under some attack in that sense that because... The myths have been broken with Irish history. In other words, a gallant nation struggling for 800 years against a you know, jackbooted oppressor. Because that's not entirely true all the time. Sometimes, sometimes some historians have given the impression that it's never true at all. So in other words, shared memories. And shared memories themselves, although they're wrong, I know you talked about your first introduction, your first few words, we're talking about the sort of history you'd imbibed as a, as a, as a child, which is all wrong, you know, defeated the Spanish Armada. But those are shared memories. Yeah. And that's part of a nation. And that can be sort of part of a cultural unity as well. So sometimes maybe a nation should get things wrong. Can, we not, can we not share memories that are right, though? I mean, I don't see why we need to share memories the, that are wrong. The memories which um, are, you well, know, the, well, Michael Howard, who I think is a great historian, said there are two kinds of history. There's what he calls the nursery history, which are comforting stories which make you feel good about yourself. And he said regimental histories are often like that. You know, we've, and he said it's a very important factor in creating regimental solidarity, which is important for things. But then he said there's grown-up history. And grown-up history is where you are capable of looking at yourself and saying, you know, we are, we have, it's a mixed bag. And our history is a mixed bag. And what we thought was a very nice, simple story. I mean, I think what's been happening in Irish history is actually great because... Part of what was happening in Irish history was not just celebrating the emergence of an independent island, but it was also keeping Ulster and, and that independent island apart. And there was a very poisonous series of myths, and, and it came from both sides, um, you know, about the First World War, for example, that the Catholics didn't fight and the Protestants did. Um, and the Catholics just sat at home and then had the Easter uprising, and they, they were not loyal. And what historians have been doing is, is saying this is just simply not true. You know, 210,000 Irish fought, 201,000 Irish fought, in the, in the First World War, m many of them, the majority of them, were Catholics. And I think that's actually been a very useful advance because it's made it possible for the Irish to recognize that in some cases they share a history. And I think one of the great steps forward was when the Queen and, and Mary McAleese, who was then the President of Ireland, went to Messine, um, site of a battle in, in 1917, and, and, and uh, you know, dedicated a memorial together. 
And I think, you know, that, I think that, I mean, you know, it's not being totally cynical. I mean, I think, I, I think if we've given the impression that we just go around saying, oh, that's not true, you know, and that's not true, and that's <laughs> Quite rubbish. Quite isn't it? Yeah, it no, we, we don't time. do that. I mean, I think what we want to do is say, let's, let's be grown up about this and let's recognize. I mean, you know, Canadians tell themselves, we tell ourselves lovely stories about ourselves. You know, we've always been a peace-loving people. Occasionally we go off and do a spot of peacekeeping just to show how peace-loving we are. <laughs> and we're really nice and we're very, you know, gentle people. You know, I mean, when people say that, I say, watch a game of hockey. You know, I say no more, you know. I, I mean, it, it's also the case, of course, that myths have their own history and, and misunderstandings of the past can be incredibly influential. And the classic example of that would be Magna Carta, which, you know, we celebrated with great enthusiasm last year. And the salient point that almost everyone agreed on was that although Magna Carta was not the... Uh, you know, did not give us our liberties, the creative misunderstanding of Magna Carta as the founding charter of our liberties became innate, facilitated all Yes. I think that's a very good point. In fact, I'm almost inclined to close this on this point. I think that point so uh, elegantly, uh, the agreement so elegantly sums up this... uh, uh, this, this last 90 minutes that I would ask, I would ask you to indulge me in not risking us going in a separate, separate direction. So I'd like to thank uh, our guests very much for that. I was very pleased we ended up in that way. Was, you've been a very great audience and very good questions. And um, is there anything else I have to do according to the strict d- guidelines? Only, yes. only I've, I've already done that, though. And but it never hurts to remind people. No, no, it helps. There's, there's, there's going to be a book signing outside, and I'm very glad that I didn't have to use the organisers' very, very detailed knowledge, uh, detailed instructions, which I thought I'd missed, which is all about how I'm supposed to behave if you misbehave. But that was all. None of that was necessary.